again, you may be seated. This I encourage you now to join me in taking your Bibles and turning with me to the last chapter of Nehemiah, chapter 13. So we are getting to the end of our book of this study. We started this back in early September, so now almost nine months later, with some pauses here and there, we have come to the end of the book of Nehemiah. As you see that, you see this chapter is another one of those longer chapters and passages. We will read through the entirety of it, but because it is so long, uh, we will stay seated during the reading. You will. I will stay standing during the reading of it. Um, But Nehemiah 13, and let us go now again before the Lord in time of prayer before we come together before his word. We pray to you, our our good uh, heavenly God and Father, praying that you might forgive all of our faults and offenses and illuminate us by your Holy Spirit so we may have the true understanding of your Holy Word. And give us the grace that we need so we may handle it purely and faithfully. And this to the glory of your Holy Name, for the edification of your church and for our salvation. We ask these things in the name of the one and only blessed Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So Nehemiah 13, beginning in verse 1. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering and the frankincense, the vessels and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. After some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber, And I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and I said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed treasures over the storehouses, these several people, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, considering this, and do not wipe out my good deeds I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain, and leading them on donkeys, and also wine, and grapes, and figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. 
Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. And then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodge outside Jerusalem once or twice. <clears throat> but I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Don't you love that threat? I'm going to lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come, to this, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded Levites, they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also, my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each, of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons, or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women. Among the main nations there is no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And then skipping down to verse 30. Uh, Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering as appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Grass withers and the flowers fade, and we continue to give us breath through the rest of this worship service. Oh man. Have you ever had a project that you threw yourself all the way into? And at the end of it, you can say with all confidence and sincerity that it had your blood, sweat, and tears in it. And after you had finished your project, after some time, you began to notice that because of the willful neglect of other people, this thing began to come apart or, or unravel or wasn't being used for what it was meant to be used. And how frustrating it can be to see your blood, sweat, and tears in this project that is now coming apart. Now, let's do our best to put ourselves in the shoes of Nehemiah. And God has made known to you there's a project for you to do. It's not restoring a car or or building a picnic table or or painting your living room. Rather, you are called to go and oversee the restoration and rebuilding of the wall that is surrounding his holy city of Jerusalem. We know this. This is the project that God has given Nehemiah. As we've seen that this wall stood not only for protection against their enemies, but it's also a wall that provides security for the covenant community so they could be revived and restored in the covenant with God. So this project for Nehemiah was part of God's sovereign plan to gather his people back together in his city 
so he may revive them in faith and covenant. As we have seen in the previous chapters, Nehemiah took upon this project. He threw himself into it through faithful praying, through planning, and through work. And now the project has been completed. The wall is, re- is restored. The city is protected. The covenant community has been gathered back together from exile. And they are being revived and reformed. And Nehemiah tells us how far this revival reformation has gone. They have shown a renewed commitment to scripture and genuine thankfulness for God's mercy. They now have sincere, repentant spirit and prayer. They are loyal to God by covenant renewal. That They're willing to move back into the city. They have this exuberant joy in dedicating the city walls. And they delight in, the, in their priests and Levites who minister on their behalf. And they support their spiritual leaders. It is quite the revival and restoration. What we have witnessed with this covenant community is something that I hope we all long to see in our own day. That God would visit us in the power of his spirit to remove our spiritual laziness and indifference and to restore a, a vitality and commitment to our faith. That we will no longer err towards nominal Christianity, but we will now err more towards faithful Christianity. As we read these chapters, it should evoke us the psalmist prayer from Psalm 85. Will you not revive us again so your people may rejoice in you? And that prayer has been, has been answered here. The wall is complete. The city is protected. And the covenant community are being revived and reformed. And if this was a movie, this is where we would expect to see the last shot of Jerusalem and the sun is setting behind it. And the narrator says, and they lived happily ever after. It's all done. Yet you just read with me chapter 13. And that's exactly what doesn't happen. Nehemiah's narrative ends with the explanation that God's people have fallen back into sinful, willful neglect to their end of the covenants. That this project path that Nehemiah had given himself over to is now being torn apart by their willful neglect of the covenants. Now keep in mind that their fathers, this covenant community, their fathers and their forefathers before them, they have been in exile from Jerusalem and Israel for that very sin. They have been exiled because they are covenant breakers, because they have willfully neglected the covenant. And so this covenant community, they have seen the consequences of that sin. They have suffered for the consequences of that sin. They have been brought out of exile, and they now have been revived by the Spirit of God. And yet, Nehemiah ends the story by telling us that they have now fallen into committing similar sins, the willful neglect of the covenant of God. That's why there's that old saying, sin makes you stupid. And we see that here, don't we? They know the consequences of their actions. They have suffered the consequences of their actions from their forefathers. And yet at some point they go, hmm, it may be worth it. It may be worth pursuing this sin. So we find... 
that the covenant community's unrepentant sin and lack of obedience has led to willful neglect of this wonderful revival and reformation that had taken place. So Nehemiah comes back. He has been gone for some time. He comes back to this project that has his blood, sweat, and tears in it. And he now again has to guide God's people back to an understanding of what it means to be the people of God, to be the covenant community. And he tells us that there are four main issues that come from their neglect. They have compromised, they have been careless, they have engaged in wrong commercialism, and they have been involved in wrong marriage. Now the timeline is, it's been 12 years. So again, this was a movie, at the end of chapter 12, the screen would go black, and we see the letter, you know, words come up 12 years later, dot, dot, dot. Twelve years have taken place since the restoring of the wall and revival and reformation. Nehemiah has gone back to his day job as the cupbearer for the king of Babylon. Twelve years later, he now comes back. He comes back to this place, to these people he loves, and he finds that the covenant community is not doing well. They're not doing well, first of all, because of their willful neglect and that they have compromised the use of the temple. Now I want you to go back to your... Sunday school lessons on the Old Testament, Bible studies and Bible lessons on the Old Testament, and remember about the old about the temple. And what do we know about the temple? We know it was the place where God's people would gather to worship on the Lord's days, where they would go to offer their sacrifices. But we also we, we also know that in the temple there is a special room, right? And that room is called the Holy of Holies. And who resides in the Holy of Holies? God does. So this is not just a building for worship. There's a very room in there where God resides. And what happens with the temple during the time that Nehemiah is gone? Well, he tells us a priest named Eliashib gives a large chamber in the temple to be used by Tobiah. Now, do you remember the name Tobiah? We go back to chapters 2 and 4 and find that he's one of the trinity of evil plotters and schemers against Nehemiah. Together with Sambalat and Geshem, Tobiah has sought to prevent the Israelites from constructing Jerusalem's walls. Tobiah is an enemy of God's people. Therefore, Tobiah is an enemy of God. And J.I. Packer describes him in this way. He was a worldly wise formalist and pragmatist hard-hearted as well as hard-headed, who is not so foolish as to let his faith affect his personal and professional life. To him, the glory of God as a motive meant nothing. He was a cynic, a kind quite familiar, we are familiar with in the modern world. Here's Tobiah, an enemy of God, an enemy of the people. We're told a priest, Eliashib, gives Tobiah a room in the temple. And not just any room, but it's the room that was designated for the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, wine, oil, all these things given uh, by commandment that were, to be, that were to be given out to those who led in worship. So it's not like a little loft apartment that he has you know, above you know, some part of the, of the temple. This was a room that was meant to be the collection place for, 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 uh, to support those who led in worship. Now this may 
This may be comparing apples to oranges, but I hope it helps us. And I want you to imagine that you, you come to church here next Sunday, and you come in and you realize that I have taken over the sanctuary to be my own personal man cave. And I've taken out all the pews. And I've got numerous big screen televisions set up. And I've got my guitars and music all over the place. And I've got couches and I've got chairs. I've made it into my own personal man cave. I'm going to assume that most of you, if not all of you, would not be too happy about me taking over this place for my own personal use. They said maybe keeping the couches and chairs so we can sit on them and, you know, later on Sundays as we come to worship. Here we have Tobiah, a sworn enemy of God's people, taking over a room that was meant to be used to collect items for the priest. And he'd keep, he has it for his own profane use. So we can understand Nehemiah's anger, can't we? We can, we can understand why Nehemiah comes in and we can, we go imagine him, you know, throw it to buy out down the steps and then here comes out the, the couches and the chairs and the beds, right? We can understand why Nehemiah would be so angry about this. Because certain things cannot be tolerated in the house of God at any time. And we see that here. Certain things can never be tolerated in the house of God at any time. We're not called to compromise it. This is the place of worship. Now we understand when we say the church, we mean the people. As we've said before, if anything, God forbid, if anything would happen to the sanctuary and it wasn't to be here or anything to this property, there would still be a Bethel ARP church because we are Bethel ARP church. But God has given us a place. And he has given us a beautiful sanctuary for his covenant community of Bethel to gather to worship him. And we are called to treat this place as such. This isn't the temple. We don't have a Holy of Holies. But this is the place that God has given us to worship. And we are to treat it with that respect and reverence. And there may be some, maybe not here, but in the world who are tempted to think, well, that's a rather severe view. And and Nehemiah's response was too severe. We need to remember when Jesus went to the temple, and he saw the money changers and what was going on. It says this, in that temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And the money changers were sitting there. And he made a whip of cords. And he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers. And he turned over their tables. And he, said, he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. What what a picture we're given here. Jesus makes a whip. He doesn't go to the corner and find one. He makes a whip. He overturns tables. Because he's infuriated that the place of worship has been turned into something profane. 
The story of Nehemiah tells us that God is serious about his people. And the story of Nehemiah ends on this note that we are to be serious about what he takes serious, such as respecting where we worship. This is where God has given us to worship. And we are to take care of it as such. And I'm thankful for a diaconate session who takes, and a people who takes good care of this church. But we're not called to do it for, for, for historical value. We're not called to do it so we look good in the community. We're called to take care of this place because it glorifies God that this is the beautiful place he has given us for us to gather together as worship. As Nehemiah deals with this, with the temple, he then finds another issue from the willful, willful neglect of the people. And we find verses 10 through 14 that they have neglected the priests. Not only have they allowed the enemy of God to move in, they have now neglected to take care of the priests. And they have promised, they've made a covenant that we will take care of them. But they have not. So Nehemiah has to deal with this. He, he calls the temple officials together and he deals with their hypocrisy. So not only was the, the temple being willfully neglected, but so were the, the people of the temple. So we have, we, we have the, the, the temple itself being misused. We have the people who are leaning over it being misused or being abused. And this ties with the next issue that Nehemiah had to deal with. And that is uh, the covenant community's willful neglect of the covenant they have made. They are now profaning the Sabbath day. If you ever do a study of the Sabbath day of the Old Testament, you find there's an interesting history there. It's a part of God's created order. God created all things in the span of six days. On the seventh day, he rested. That's the Sabbath day. So it's a part of his created order. It's a part of his Ten Commandments as well. What's the Fourth Commandment? Keep the Sabbath day holy. So Scripture explains to us that the Sabbath day was created for our good and it was regulated for our good. It's it's the best day. It's, it's, It's the best day for us. And yet, time and time again, we find that God's people not only didn't keep the Sabbath, but they seem to harbor a a deep dislike for it. We we find it in the prophet Amos who said that Israel got upset when they shut down business on the Sabbath. They had to go to the Walmart on the Sabbath day. Why would they shut it down? They had to go get something to eat on the Sabbath. Why would they shut it down? They were upset with their Chick-fil-A at the time because they were shut down. But we find even the prophet Amos saying that Israel was upset in keeping the Sabbath. Prophet Jeremiah describes how the people profaned this day. And now we go here and we see again, after being brought out of exile, going through covenant renewal, God's old people began to profane this day again. Now we read this and we see that Nehemiah goes to some links to ensure that the covenant community would keep the Sabbath day. He'd have the, the gates of the city shut. He threatened to, to throw hands on those who disobeyed. But I don't think our focus should be on what Nehemiah did. Our focus should be on why. Why is Nehemiah so serious about this? Is he just one of those crazy holy rollers who, who's just too kind of fundamentalist and has gone way overboard? I mean, come on, Nehemiah. What's wrong about going to the market on the Sabbath day and buying some olives and some grapes and some cheese to have a nice dinner? What's your problem? 
Well, the answer is what we've already said. The Sabbath day was created by God and ordered by God for our good. And the people were acting against their good. Prophet Isaiah tells us that that God's people are to call the Sabbath a delight. Because it's a day set aside for us to spend with the Lord. A day for us to say no to the world and yes to the Lord. Yet God's people time and time again have been found guilty of not, not only not keeping the Sabbath, but harboring almost a disdain for it. And here they've broken their part of the covenant with God. To them, the Sabbath is no longer a delight, it's a burden. To them, the Sabbath isn't for their good, it's for their woe and discomfort. But for honest, many modern-day Christians look at it the same way, don't we? It's not a delight, it's a burden. It's not for our good, it's for our woe and for our discomfort. I jokingly, if I'm honest, I... <laughs> I have jokingly I referred to June as the month of me, the month of James. They both start with the letter J. You have Father's Day in a week and next Sunday. Quick reminder for everybody, Father's Day is next Sunday. And my birthday is in two and a half weeks on June 29th, if anyone's keeping track. And I think what I'll say for myself would be true for everybody else in here. And how disappointing and sad it would be if I found out that my family saw my birthday as a woeful burden. Now, on June 29th, they're sitting together and they're like, great. Here's another one of his birthdays. Guess we need to do something to shut him up. Wish we didn't have anything to, didn't have to do anything for him. Wish I just have this day to myself and not worry about celebrating his birthday. Now, for the record, my family, it goes above and beyond for my birthday. I don't want to mess it up for this year. They never treat as a willful burden. But imagine if you found out how your family thought of just one day out of a year for you. Your birthday has become a willful burden for them. And every week, the Lord gives us his day to say, I created it for your good. I've regulated it for your good. It's to be your delight. And we say, I will give you one hour. And if I'm feeling particularly saucy, I'll give you two because I'll go to Sunday school. But you get no more. And if there's something else that comes up I would rather be doing, I will choose that. We as Christians are good at pointing at the world and bemoaning how set the world has become against us. But you've heard that saying, when you point a finger, you've got three or four, if you include the thumb, pointed back at you. When was the last time we looked at ourselves and said, maybe we're the problem? Because the very things that God calls us to lie in, we treat like a burden. The very things that God has given to us for our good, we treat as woeful and harmful. And even when he gives us a day to spend with him, for honest, there's times we'd rather be somewhere else, anywhere else, doing something else.
Why should the world take God seriously when we're guilty of not taking him and his covenant with us seriously? And we see what happens to covenant breakers. Finally, final issues we see in the closing verses is that God's covenant people have begun to again marry outside the faith. Paul explains says that we're not to be unequally yoked because what happens when a believer marries a non-believer? Well, we're told here they now begin to not even understand the language for the, that, that scripture is written in. And from my experience, and I realize I'm getting more and more experience in ministry, I'm getting gray in my hair, my beard showing that. From my experience over 20 odd years of being in ministry, in those sort of relationships and marriages, the believer becomes more influenced by the non-believer. Very rarely have I seen a believer and non-believer get married and a non-believer the next Sunday goes, all right, we get to go to church. Let's go. More often not, that next Sunday, the believer doesn't go to church. And the following Sunday. And the following Sunday. And then you add children into the mix. And the children are not being raised in the church. Now, Paul tells us there are grace resource situations. That a believing spouse can have a great influence on a non-believing spouse. But Paul also makes sure to explain it's a lot of work. A lot of time, a lot of effort. And it's meant to be the exception to the rule. God's people are meant to marry someone in the same faith. Nehemiah uses the example of Solomon, the wisest king of all time, to explain what happens when we don't obey this directive. And this is a directive we need to teach our children. Marry in the faith. One final point for us to take note of here. And that's Nehemiah's response to the situation. We're told he gets angry. He throws furniture out, he rebukes, he pulls out hair, he threatens to throw hands. And sometimes we as Christians look at this response and we find justification for us to act in the same way. Because it's easy for us to be like bulls in a china shop. But when we look for his justification, then we're looking at it the wrong way. We need to remember, Nehemiah's anger is kindled against the people because they have broken covenant with God. This wasn't personal. This wasn't a personal grievance. This wasn't something personal, necessarily personal has happened to Nehemiah. This is the fact that God's people are sinning against God. So his anger is a righteous anger because they have broken covenant with God. And secondly, I would argue that grace is behind what Nehemiah was doing. The covenant community have willfully neglected the covenant of grace. And by neglecting the covenant of grace means they are walking outside the path of grace. They are no longer walking with the God of grace. So Nehemiah's motivation here isn't for him to be right or to be superior. His motivation is for grace. He knows these people, that they don't deserve to be back there, but God has called them back. They don't deserve to have God as their God, but God has, has covenant to be their God. So he wants to see them reconciled to God. He wants to see them walk again in grace and to walk with their God of grace. And that should be our motivation as well. 
When we see others straying from God's covenant, when they see them breaking God's covenant, we don't want to be right or superior. We want to see them reconciled. It's interesting, if, if you follow Paul's trajectory, Paul's maturity, you start with Galatians and, and, and you follow chronologically uh, through the end of, of 2 Timothy, you see him growing uh, in this sort of response. We, we, think of, you know, we think of him getting into an argument with Peter in front, of, in front of everybody. But read first in 2 Timothy and see how gracious he has learned to be. Because the same Paul tells us that we're to speak the truth in love, but we're specifically, or we're, he calls us to speak the truth, but specifically to speak the truth in love. Because Paul knows it's easy to be a bull, a bull in a china shop. But it's hard for us to be gracious. Because we need to think about the grace shown to us in Jesus Christ. You know, instead, of, instead of gleefully pointing at us and laughingly going, ha 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 ha, you're going to hell. Ha 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 ha, you disobeyed, so now you burn. Ha 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 ha. Jesus never says that, does he? He says, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. For God so loved the world, he gave you me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. God over and over and over again shows us grace. He has given us his own son who is grace incarnate. And we are to be gracious to and with each other. Nehemiah's end goal here isn't the dance on the corpse of covenant breakers. His goal was to see them back in the covenant of grace, to be partakers of God's grace. And may we all have that same spirit of faith and grace with and for each other. Pray with me.